Uh, if you've got a Bible within arm's reach, and I'm sure you do, open it up with me to page 874, and that's where you can find Luke chapter 14, page 874. Now, I want you to imagine, if you could, the dinner table at your house when you were little growing up. You picture it in your mind? Uh, what it was shaped like? Was it a round? Was it a rectangle? Uh, how many chairs were around that table? And which one was yours? And where you sat in relationship to your sister or your brother or your mom or your dad? And what were the meals that your mom would make that were in the family rotation of things that were just like your family favorites? Uh, for me, my mom and dad made a dish called Irish-Italian spaghetti. <laughs> would you like to know the recipe? <laughs> uh, you saute up your onions and your garlic, you add spicy Italian sausage, and uh, you add your tomatoes, let it simmer, and then, to make it Irish, you add a can of mushrooms, sure, and a can of tomato soup. Irish-Italian spaghetti. Go home and make it. But here's the thing. The sauce is a little more orange than it is red. Uh, this is one of our family favorites. I come home from college, and, you know, what are we going to have for dinner? Let's make Irish-Italian spaghetti. Uh, I became an adult, moved out, uh, got married, made this for my wife, Jackie. And I didn't know that it's not really that good. <laughs> <laughs> Because my memories of it when I was a kid were different than the reality of what it was like to look back on them with a little more objectivity as an adult. And no matter how old you are, the memories of our family and the things that bring us back, things that give us a sense of home, even our physical home itself isn't quite the way that it was the way that we remember it. I mean, it's a little smaller. If you go back to visit your home, the plants are different in the front. They've changed the things on the inside. The people who live there now aren't the people who used to live there when you lived there. Our sense of home changes over time. We all long for a place where we can sit at a table and be our true selves and be with the people who matter to us. Jesus is talking to us today about what it means to be home with him and what it's like to sit at his table in the parable of the great banquet. I'd like you, if you would, to turn with me there because we're gonna see three things in our text today. First, what this great banquet is. Second, who it's for. The answer might surprise you. And third, how it comes. What it is, who it's for, how it comes. Let's start with the first of those three things, what it is. Now, in the ancient world, a banquet was far more than a meal. It was far more than fuel for your body. In the ancient world, to eat a meal with someone was to be connected, to have fellowship, to be one with them, to open your home and to open your life, and for that matter, to open your heart. 
And so whenever we see people in the scripture who are eating together, it's far more than a meal. They're spending time with each other, sure, but they're connected in a deep and personal way. Luke's gospel especially, among the other three gospels, four in total, three plus one is four, just in case you were tracking with me, that's quick math, that's about all I can do. I'm a pastor, I do words, not numbers. Whenever we see Jesus eating, Nine times in Luke's gospel, far more than the other gospels, he's at a party, he's at a wedding, he's spending time, he's eating a meal with someone. And here in chapter 14, he's invited to the home of a ruler of the Pharisees. Right before this, he's said in chapter 13, whoever is last will be first, and whoever first will be last. Right before our text picks up, verse 11, the bottom of the page before, he says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And so Jesus turns to the host, this ruler of the Pharisees, after looking around at the guests, and he says, what kind of people are you inviting into your life? Are they people who are like you? Are you inviting them for your sake or their sake? Let's take a look at Luke chapter 14, verses 12 through 14. He also said to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, you know, people who are like you, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But, not like this, rather like this, Verse 13, but when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now, it's easy to run right by this, but Jesus is talking about a culture in the ancient world where if you did something for someone, it was expected that they would do something for you. That if you extended an invitation to your home, that that person then would be expected to invite you to their home. And for that matter, if you accepted an invitation to somebody's home, you would be on the hook to have them over to your house. Whether you're inviting or you're accepting an invitation, it's the same way. Is it for your sake, so that they'll do a favor for you, or is it for their sake, knowing that they can't do a favor for you. And what Jesus is doing here is he's challenging the social norms of the day. And there's a man who's in the party who overhears this, who's probably a little bit uncomfortable that Jesus is trying to rearrange the chairs on the deck and how things work at the time. And he says, well, you know, blessed is everyone who eats bread in the kingdom of God. That's in verse 15. And then Jesus proceeds to tell them about a different man who throws a great party and the kind of people who he invites, from who it's, or what it is, to who it's for. Let's keep reading verses 16 and 17. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now Ready, let's pause right there so far. Now, in the Eastern world, time is a more relative thing than it is for us 
in the Western world. You know, you set a date, you create an appointment, you invite someone over, you say, come over at six. At this time, you came over when things were ready. In order to get ready, here's what you would do. It was a two-step process. First, you would send out your invitation to your guests, and they would RSVP and indicate that they were coming. And then you would butcher enough cattle or meat to provide for your guests. And then, after you had prepared the meal and everything was ready, then, step two, you would send out someone to let the people know that everything was now prepared. That's what's happening here. And so the people who were invited, who we meet in the next couple of verses, have already indicated to the host that they're coming. They're already in. We'll call them insiders. Verse 18, let's keep going. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Okay, he's lying. Here's how we know this. You, today, no one buys a home over the phone, tells a realtor, yeah, that sounds good. That's kind of the house that I want in the neighborhood that I want and the price that I can afford. No, what would you do first? You would go and inspect the home. You'd take a tour. No one in the ancient world would buy a piece of property without scouting every stone, every slope, every tree. They would know where it was. Let's keep reading. And another said, I bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. Guess what he's doing? He's lying. Because no one calls up somebody at Champ Honda and says, yep, I'll take five car used cars. Uh, that sounds like the make and model I want at the price that I want. No, you would go and look at them first. You would test drive them first. And here there aren't five oxen. It's five yoke of oxen. It's 10 oxen. This is a very big investment. There was a proving ground next to the marketplace where if you were buying animals, you could test them out before you would buy them. It doesn't happen in the order that Jesus is telling them here. They're lying. Finally, one more. Guess number three. Another said, verse 20, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. Guess what he's doing? He's, can you tell? He's lying. How do we know? Because a village could only really support one party at a time. Uh, re wedding receptions were a multi-day event. And all of the guests who would be at this wedding wouldn't have been available. This wedding wouldn't have been available for the host in the story that Jesus tells, because the local VFW would already be booked. Everybody would be down there. Okay, the host has a right to be angry. And not simply because he's out what he already prepared. He's not just being practical, saying, well, I gotta feed this to somebody. Let's have somebody over. He has a right because his friends have snubbed him. And if you were in the listening to the story that Jesus told, you would be shocked by what happens next. Because the host turns to the outsiders. Verse 21. So the servant came and reported these things to the master. And the master of the house became angry and his servant said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. The servant said, sir, what you've commanded has been done. There's still room. And the master said to his servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Now this is astonishing. It's astonishing that you would turn down an invitation like this. It's astonishing because the guests at the Pharisee's house that night would never dream of attending a party like this. They were the insiders. They were the upper crust of society, the morally obedient, the religious elite, and they didn't associate with the kind of people who ended up coming to the party at the end. But there's more. 
if you notice that none of the people who end up coming to the party have any hope of ever repaying the host. These are the poor, the lame, the crippled, and the blind who live on the streets in the city and outside of the city. They have no home, they have no money, they have no party to throw and no favors to give, and even if they did, no one would want the kind of favors they they could offer. Outsiders and insiders, before we move on, we have to ask ourselves an important question. Which guest are you? We have two groups here. I think our default is to put ourselves somewhere in the middle. Because we've got the insiders, the good ones, the righteous, the obedient, the elite. Maybe like them, maybe not. Maybe I'm not as good as them. We have the outsiders, the ones who don't belong who have no right to be there, who live outside the city or on the streets, and we say, well, I'm not like them. I mean, I got here in a car today. I slept in my own home, and I've got a table where I can eat my meals. I'm not like them. I'm not like them. Our tendency, I think, is to put ourselves somewhere in the middle, to call ourselves, as one commentator says, middle class in spirit. Not like them, not like them. I would argue that you're probably more like both of them that you, than you would like to admit. Because we've all got excuses. You know, for all of us, there's a time and place where it's convenient for us to obey and to live according to God's good design for our lives. Most of the time, but there's the rest of the time. And we'll justify in our head why it's not convenient why it's okay for us to react the way that we did, why it's okay for us to be angry, and why it's okay for us to worry, why it's okay for us to snap back at the people who matter most to us. And we'll go out of our way when it's convenient to serve and to give ourselves to the people who have needs, kind of like that group over there, or maybe to our family members or our friends, you know, and we'll say, you know, I did something good today. Feel good about that. Most of the time. But there's the rest of the time. It matters just as much when we're too busy or just too much on our plate. And fill in the blank, what's your excuse? You're probably more like them than you would like to admit. What Jesus says is that I didn't come for the middle class in spirit. We say they're kind of okay in the middle. Jesus says I came for the poor in spirit. He says, to enjoy my feast and to sit at my table is for you. If you have the courage to admit that I am not just poor, but I am morally bankrupt. And I've been wasting your grace. And I've been far from home in my wandering in my search for approval and worth and meaning. I've been making all kinds of compromises. And in my need for comfort 
and convenience. I prioritize that over sacrifice and service. Because in my need for those things, I've got an inner emptiness that I just can't fill on my own. And when I wander and when I try to live my life my way, instead of your way, that in all these things, I'm trying to find my own way home. And so I'm not just weak. I am weak. I'm broken. And I live in a broken world. And there is brokenness not just outside me, but inside me too. Can you say that? Can you humble yourself like that? How can you have the courage to do that? And to admit that you're poor and sinful and unpardonable, the only way is for the great banquet to come to you. Because that's really the reality here. It's not that you have to dress up to come to this party, and it's not looking good or doing the right things that will get you in. Oh no, my friends, the beauty is that this is a banquet that comes to you. When you see the one who left his home for you. He wandered on earth. He said, foxes have homes and birds have nests, but I'm the son of man and I've got no place to lay my head. Left his family, crucified outside the city. He left the beauty and the glory of being connected in the fellowship of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God pouring themselves out out of service and love and joy for each other. He said, I'm gonna leave all that behind, even though it's not convenient for me. And the one who was on the inside became the ultimate outsider for you. Here's the way Robert Capon says that in a book called Parables of Grace. He talks about this. He said, Jesus is not telling the parable to enforce a moral about being nice to the less fortunate than ourselves. We already knew about that obligation. Rather, he's telling this parable to stand all our values on their heads. Do you see that the point is that none of the people who had a right to be at the proper party came and that all the people who had no right whatsoever to be there actually were invited after all. This parable says that we are going to be dealt with in spite of our deservings, not according to them. That grace, as portrayed here, works only on the untouchable, the unpardonable, the unacceptable. It works, in short, by raising the dead, not by rewarding the living. He goes on to say this. Take a look. Just as the only constant factor in the whole story is the host's monal maniacal determination that his house be full. So also the only constant factor in the history of God's salvation is God's equally monomaniacal commitment of grace. It is precisely that commitment that leads him into the corresponding weakness and foolishness of insisting that being caught dead on the cross for you is the only ticket to the supper of the Lamb. dead in our sins and our trespasses. The cross comes to you through a man 
crucified dead on the cross and risen for you. It comes through the cross. And it comes when he comes back because all the pages of the scripture are whispering and rustling the rumor that one day the host, the Lord of hosts, will return to this broken world and make this place the home that it once was in the Garden of Eden and the home that we long for it to be when we can be our true selves. And and he'll pull out on that day the chair that's been waiting for you at his table. Someone tries to sit there, he says, oh no, this one at my side, this seat is reserved for you. And so until that day, every party is a glimpse of the great party and the great banquet that is to come. And every good meal that you eat, when when your, your belly is full and you push yourself back from the table as you wipe your mouth with your napkin and set it down, is a glimpse of the great feast that is to come. And every laughter, every joy, every tear that he wipes away, every slice of chocolate cake and every piece of dessert and every plate of Irish-Italian spaghetti is a glimpse that there's more for you. Someday, today, he's not done. Because in a few moments, you're gonna stand here shoulder to shoulder with people who don't deserve to be here either at the Lord's table in Holy Communion. He comes to you. People don't deserve to be there. You who can't afford to be here. And in more than just an ordinary meal, more than just bread and wine is his body and his blood. And it is fellowship and communion. It is union with him. I went to see somebody at the hospital on Tuesday. Her name is Cindy. Her husband is Tom. They come to our Saturday night service. Cindy's had cancer and uh, has been on a bunch of uh, experimental drugs because the normal treatments haven't been working and uh, she w- wasn't awake at the hospital and she's over at Park Road Venice and uh, Tom called me on Wednesday after I visited her and said hey she's doing a lot better we think she's recovering this is great uh, I said well fine uh, like, can you put on speaker I'd love to talk to her and so we talked for a little bit and she's, she's on a breathing mask that's kind of open and so she could hear my voice and I could kind of hear hers through the speaker and Tom had to translate a little bit but but uh Thursday after I talked to them on the phone and prayed with them Thursday I'm pulling out of my driveway and I wonder I wonder how Tom and Cindy are doing so I called them as I'm leaving my neighborhood and Tom picked up right away and he said did you get the text I just sent I said uh, no I just left my house he said well I I wonder if you could come over because she's not doing so good we think this is going to be it. She's got liver cancer. It's all over her body. And uh, I said, you bet. I'm on my way. So make a beeline over there. I arrive right before they are doing rounds in the morning with uh, the hospitals. She's at the, in the ICU. And there's her two sons um, and uh, her, about 10 other family members who are in the room with them. And I walk in, and Cindy has a great smile on her face. And she's cracking jokes. And she's laughing, and, and, not, and she's getting laughs, not just because we're like, you know, chuckling because, you know, she's got a breathing mask off on and she's making jokes, but they're really funny. She's a funny person. And I did something I don't normally get to do in moments like that. I had my communion kit with me, and we celebrated the Lord's Supper 
with Cindy and Tom. I, I broke the little wafer, just like the one that you're going to have in a few moments in half, and I dipped it in the wine, and I just tapped it on her tongue. We moved her mask to the side, and, and then I gave that same wafer to her husband, Tom. You know, he, they took communion in that way, in a very personal, deep way, connected in her sons, then her family members who were in town from Nebraska. And uh, normally I don't get to do that, because normally the person's not even awake who I'm visiting before their death. I got a text message at five o'clock the next morning that Cindy had died the day that I visited. Just like that. I tell you that to tell you this. uh, That every time you take the Lord's Supper, you're connected to Cindy now. Whether you know her name or her face or not. And every time you take the Lord's Supper, you're connected to saints and archangels and all the company of heaven. And every time you take the Lord's Supper, you eat more than just bread and wine. You commune with the very presence of the Lord of hosts who comes and brings his table and his presence and his gifts to you. You don't need to dress up for that. You don't have to be the person who does the right things in the right way. All you need is your need for him. To say, I'm poor in spirit. I don't deserve to be here. I can't afford to be here. But this is the banquet that I need. This is your presence and your gifts, and it's for me. And so I'm so glad, O Lord, that you've come through your cross and you will come again, and I'm so glad that you come here through Holy Communion today. In the name of Jesus, crucified and risen for you and for me, amen.